7 of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. I'm your host, Henry Hyde, and this is a short clip from today's main interview. Crucial moment when suddenly a couple realise that's it, it's not going to change from here onwards. Sometimes couples come to see me and they, and either one just suddenly says, we've been here long enough, this is not going to change, I'm not coming back. It's that moment where they realise that this is how it's, it's, it's not going to get any better. And then it's up to them whether they're going to move on or perhaps, and in many circumstances they can't, they get stuck because their children are involved. That was the voice of Deirdre Wallace, who very kindly agreed to come onto the show today to talk about relationships. Uh, Deirdre is a Harley Street practitioner. She's a psychodynamic relationship therapist, clinical psychologist, educator, and she's also the producer of the Step-by-Step Relationship Knowledge System. And I think you're going to find a lot of uh, relevance in what she has to say, both uh, during the show and also do go and check out her blog. I've put the link to her blog in the show notes because there's a huge amount of material there. Uh, A lot of it's very powerful stuff, I have to say. A lot of it made me sit up straight and think about my own life, that's for sure. So that's Deirdre Wallace, who's uh, the interviewee in the main part of the show, coming up shortly. Now, as you know, I like to do a variety of different things in this introductory section of the show. And today I thought it was time to have a bit of a peek into something that I found fascinating for, well, most of my life, to be honest, which is the subject of language and languages. And uh, no, I'm not going to suddenly start um, spouting French or German or whatever. Um, This is not a language lesson. You can go and download the Duolingo app if you need that kind of thing. Now, I'm fascinated in this context by the notion of language as is, you know, at all. Where on earth does language come from? Uh, Our ability to communicate as human beings is utterly reliant upon language. Uh, Obviously, we have more problems when we're trying to communicate with someone for whom, in this case, English is not their first language, and we have trouble uh, understanding and interpreting what they mean when they communicate with us. Uh, To give a kind of recent historical example, think of the Brexit negotiations, for example, or, you know, don't think too hard about them because that's a that's a depressing subject for some. But if you can imagine the work that was having to be done by translators and interpreters talking, uh, you know, uh, and guiding all those politicians and diplomats and civil servants across all those different countries during those negotiations that was an extraordinary thing Um, and language is so inherent to how we think I mean it, it would seem silly to say to you try and think what it would be like not to have language it's impossible isn't it language is such we can't imagine ourselves even existing now without language and of course, language comes in many forms. We, talk, you know, here I am talking to you in the English language, or reasonable version of the English language. Uh, 
But of course, uh, if, say, you were a deaf person, then you would be used to using sign language, which is an extraordinary thing in itself. It's a form of communication which, as a, as a hearing person, I, and I have, I think a friend of mine once taught me the alphabet in sign language. That was a long time ago, and because I, I don't use it on a regular basis, of course I pretty much forgot it instantly. <laughs> but it's very difficult for those of us who do have hearing and speech to fully get into the mind of someone who's... Uh, version of language is so physical and so visual but I can uh, get you to think about say someone okay I'm British northern European people British uh, German Dutch uh, Scandinavian so we tend to uh, not use our hands very much when we speak maybe it's because of the cold climate we all kept our hands in our pockets to keep them warm i don't know but of course as soon as you start traveling further south you know france uh, italy spain greece as soon as i think of someone from those cultures talking they're using their hands as much as they use words uh, and what they're doing with their hands is often just kind of reinforcing uh, what they're saying sometimes it can be used to kind of ironically undercut what's said uh, other cultures as well if I think of India for example um, now I've never been to India but I've met enough Indian people and uh, you know watched enough Bollywood movies to know that hand and head gestures as well are very much part of that culture Re reinforcing adding to what's being said then of course there's the other miracle of the written language i mean one of the things that uh, i always think of as uh, in terms of the written language of books for example is they are time machines uh we are still reading and appreciating the works written by aristotle pythagoras and others thousands of years ago uh, they had no concept that when they wrote down their things, the symposium or whatever it was, Plato, let's say, that they were creating a time machine. But in fact, that is the case. We can now read and understand and get into the minds of those people, even though what they wrote was a long, long time ago. And as someone who's an author of a book myself, that's one of the things that's like, wow, gosh, um, with luck, <laughs> people will still be, you know, picking up my book, even if it's in the midst of an apocalyptic wasteland, picking up my book, dusting it off and going, oh, what's that? And they'll hear my voice effectively. Um, and that's an extraordinary thing. But of course, you know, the, the, the nub of this in terms of what this shows about is to do with, if you like, the, the science behind language, where where does it come from? Um, in a literal sense, I've got, you know, there's a, a new scientist magazine do brilliant supplements, special supplements every so often. And one that they did not so long ago was all about the workings of the brain. And so I've been able to kind of have a bit of a skip through there to just find out, get a few kind of clues as to, if you like, the neuroscience behind 
language and comprehension, just to give us a few pointers here. Um, obviously, language in the normal sense um, relies on sight for sign language, that kind of thing. But mostly now when we think of language, we think of hearing language. We have conversations with people, so we hear them and then we, we respond with our own speech. And hearing happens in the midbrain. Okay. Um, the forebrain, the cerebral cortex, is where we make plans, we generate ideas, but also we form words. Uh, we actually, if you like, um, stick bits of ideas together and squeeze out the words that we want to use to express those ideas. Uh, then we have uh, in the temporal lobes that are located just behind our ears, that area of the brain is where we comprehend sounds and speech. And also that ties in with parts of the memory, which is really interesting because, of course, if you're hold holding a conversation with someone, you need to be able to at least store what was the last person that the last thing that someone said to you so you can respond to that in a in a sensible kind of way um there's also this uh theory well it's now been proved to be a bit of a myth about the way that uh we have a left brain or a right brain kind of uh leaning um which can affect our personality and so forth. And the fact is that most people do process language in the left hemisphere, uh, whereas the right hemisphere is w w the thing that deals with kind of all the emotional content. But, of course, when you think about when you're having a normal conversation, there's all kinds of nuances to that conversation. So, in fact, uh, whilst the left hemisphere kind of produces the, a complex speech, the right hemisphere allows you to interpret and understand the emotional and even metaphorical context of the words that are being said. It kind of uh, allows us to have a kind of linguistic finesse. And obviously, one of the things that's uh, noticeable is if certain people have kind of damage to one part of their brain, that can reduce their ability to use language in a more kind of refined way. Um, the other thing is about where language begins. When do we first start to learn language? And, and I think most people think, well, you know, you pop out the womb and you start hearing your mum and dad's voice and... And you, as you get older, you, you, your mum and dad hold up cards saying, you know, A is for apple, B is for beetle or whatever it happens to be. But in fact, we start learning language whilst we're in the womb. And they reckon it could be several weeks, a couple of months before we actually are born that we're already learning language from the sound of our mother's voice and the sounds coming in from the environment around us, you know. Um, and of course, it, we're learning to recognise the sound of our mother's voice, which is an incredibly important survival thing, right? So as soon as we're out of the womb, we're vulnerable, right? Um, much more vulnerable than some other creatures that, as we've, you know, anyone who watches nature documentaries and sees, you know, a baby deer or giraffe or whatever able to stand up and run within minutes of being born. Yeah. 
us humans, we're much, much more vulnerable than that. So that's kind of, you know, where things are happening in the brain and where we start to acquire language. And language, of course, uh, is studied in all kinds of different ways. Uh, there's, there's the study of linguistics, if you like, the component parts of language. You know, how is a sentence made up? How are words made up? You know, what bits uh, attack onto what other bits to start, you know, that we can make sense of? Um, there's also actually, um, if you're an audiobook fan, and I am, there's uh, on Audible, they have a whole load of, uh, it's a series called The Great Courses. And I've just started listening to one, which has partly triggered this uh, chat, uh, called Language in the Mind. Um, and it's given by Professor Spencer Kelly. And I haven't got very far with it, but already I know it's going to be fascinating uh, because he's already talking about, you know, language as a concept and where does that come from? And I think this is one of the fascinating things. Um, and I've, you know, I, I listen to a lot of other stuff about languages, the story of language and so forth. And I'm always fascinated by how language has traveled around the globe, how the English language in particular, how the English language has ended up being like it is with a language where we have the such a vast vocabulary, such a, a hugely a uh, huge choice of nuanced ways that we can say the same thing. I'm sure we're all aware of this sort of situation with English, where there are certain ways we could say things that are more, uh, shall we say, Anglo-Saxon influenced, and certain other ways we can say the same thing, but in a more kind of Latinate influenced way. Um, and how, uh, what's fascinating as well is, there are different groups of languages around the world, uh, some that are completely unlike any others. One of the things that's always fascinated me is that um, anyone who's ever looked at or tried to learn any either Hungarian or Finnish, right? First of all, you'd probably be stumped. Good luck to you and well, hats off if you've managed to actually learn either of those languages. But there are, also, there are striking similarities between Hungarian and Finnish. Even though Hungary and Finland are a long way apart, Finland's very, very, very cold, uh, generally speaking, and Hungary is kind of more Southern European in climate. But actually, I think we've got the Vikings to thank for that. So the, we can trace the way that peoples have travelled around the globe historically and see how they've left their traces in a language as they've moved around. I mean... Uh, Latin is an obvious example where, you know, starting uh, down you know, in Italy and Rome and goodness me, look at all those places that have got languages that have got very, very heavy Latin influences. One of the interesting things about uh, the English language actually is the way that we've not, despite the Romans coming here, despite the Normans coming here, an awful lot of Anglo-Saxon stuff has hung around. It's almost like the, the, the inhabitants of these islands have kind of felt like, yeah, OK, we're good, just going to wait it out until you lot go away again. <laughs> right. You know, that whole thing of what have the Romans ever done for us? Quite a lot, actually. And they've uh, certainly influenced large swathes of our language. But a lot of our everyday language 
is still very Anglo-Saxon. Same with Norman French. You know, it came in uh, certainly amongst you know, the religious stuff and clergy and what have you and science and that kind of stuff. Yes, there's a lot of that sort of uh, influence hung around, but there's still, uh, for everyday stuff, a lot of Anglo-Saxon around. Now, that's kind of language and words and etymology and all that exciting stuff which really gets me turned on. But there's also another field of study that was brought to my attention by uh, one of my dear friends, Ava, if you're listening. Hello, Ava. Uh, and that field of study is conversational analysis which looks at not, if you like, the individual words we use or the uh, linguistic derivation of those words or that kind of thing. It actually looks at and studies how we use the language in conversation and how conversations actually work. And you might be surprised. Something that we completely, absolutely take for granted on a day-by-day -day basis, of course, is highly, highly complex and the ways that uh, we uh, interpret what someone's saying and that when we know that it's our turn time to take a turn in a conversation and how we encourage someone else to keep talking these are the bread and butter of conversational analysis now uh, there was a guy called Harvey Sachs uh, who was basically, if you like, the doyen of this field of study. And there was a fascinating book written by a chap called David Silverman all about the work of Harvey Sachs, which some of it, I have to say, is like, whoa, <laughs> this is high-grade intellectual stuff. But I think it's worth just giving you a little taste of uh, something that we don't even think about, about ways that we... Uh, conduct conversations that, if you like, are to do with language, but they're not to do with bits of language that you would necessarily find in the dictionary. And what I'm talking about is when you're having a conversation with someone, how is it that that person knows to either carry on speaking or to stop speaking and let someone else have a, uh, a turn? And uh, what I'm talking about here, in, in technical terms, they're known as response tokens. Um, so I'm just going to read you a bit from the book. This is from uh, pages 118, 119 of uh, this book, Harvey Sachs, Social Science and Conversational Analysis. OK, so because speakers are dealing with a machinery that is intersubjective, any attempt to explain or describe an utterance in psychological terms becomes, for Sachs, a lay rather than an analytic enterprise. A case in point is an utterance like, uh-huh, or uh. Here, rather than trying to read the speaker's mind, conversational analysis wants to ask, what sequential function does such a turn serve? To answer this question, we're forced to examine how any conversation unfolds. To understand this machinery further, we might distinguish between how a uh and aha uh -huh are often used. One function that a uh can have is to get the floor in a multi-party conversation. So you say a uh, close to or precisely on the end of an utterance. Then, if a silence follows, you've got the floor. As Sachs puts it, one doesn't produce a uh, 
because one is hesitating with what one has to say, but to get the floor so as to be able to say what one isn't prepared to say straight off. By contrast to a, uh, m, mm, and a, uh, huh, are part of a class of response tokens that display particular understanding of a prior turn. Response tokens are not, however, just used to stake a claim for the floor. They can also signal that someone is saying, the story isn't over. I know that. In this way, the previous speaker is informed that they can continue with whatever they were talking about. Indeed, in this case, by declining a possible turn, response tokens can require a speaker to produce more, even when they're not claiming an extension of their turn. Think of mmm, mmm, or aha, used by counsellors and the like. Above all, as Sachs notes, response tokens can be subtly recipient-designed by anticipating a possible pause and ensuring no gap and no overlap between speakers. In this way, utterances like mmm show that someone is listening and has identified a possible completion point, that is, a unit like a clause, a phrase or an intonation sequence. As Sachs notes, such units serve as grammatical stopping points within larger units. Response tokens are then obviously non-trivial tying terms, but the understanding they show is more ambiguous than, say, laughter or he did. Hence the recipient of a response token needs to look at the token producer's next utterance to see the analysis of their utterance that aha uh -huh, is doing. At the same time, a response token can go wrong when the previous utterance has projected another sort of response, such as laughter, oh, and so on. Now, that just gives you a tiny insight into the way that conversational analysis looks at, if you like, the minutiae of how we hold conversations with one another. It's an, it's an add-on. It's not focusing on the specific uh, kind of grammar that we're using it's not looking at you know it doesn't matter what kind of language we're speaking you know which language we're speaking it's actually looking at the construction of conversation now this may seem a bit kind of whoa highbrow not important to me but actually it has really important implications in certain walks of life Imagine, for example, that you are a telephone operator on an emergency hotline, such as a suicide line with Samaritans, or uh, you you work for one of the 999 services, that's 911 over in the US. If you're taking calls on behalf of the police, fire brigade or ambulance, you need to be able to get the person on the other end of the line to say as much as possible about the situation and you need to be able to interpret what that person is saying who's a lay person and maybe in a situation of terror and panic that they've never encountered before in their life and so being able to analyze and think about not just what the person is saying but how they're saying it can give you into all sorts of insights into is this person telling the truth for example how serious is the situation uh, how soon should I tell you know the ambulance to get on the way or can I give advice over the phone that actually would calm down the person who's on the end of the line and stabilize the situation conversational analysis is absolutely critical for people in those kind of walks of life so this has just been the very 
briefest of introductions to the subject of language and obviously it's it's a vast thing and I truly hope that I'm going to be able to get some people on the show to talk about these things because it's of a deep personal not just interest but a love of mind the understanding of language and and getting to grips with how our how do our minds manage to express themselves through these noises that we make how do we how do we agree on what noises meant what (laughs) right these are huge subjects how do we interpret not just the words that are coming at us but the way in which they're coming to us the, the emotional content these are all subjects that are well within the brief of this show and i hope that you've just found this little introduction interesting stimulating enough to make you think Oh, yeah, that's quite interesting. Anyway, hang on, because coming up right now is my interview with Deirdre Wallace. of Inside Your Head. And today I've got someone on the show who specialises in relationships. And I think that means that pretty much all of you out there are going to be interested in what she has to say. Uh, She has a terrific blog, I have to tell you, which uh, I'll put the link to in the show notes. So you can click on that and go and look at her blog, which is absolutely cram-packed full of fascinating stuff a lot of it i have to say really powerful stuff uh some of it may make you feel a bit uncomfortable and i certainly had a moment with it uh the other night when i started reading it and had one of those moments where it's like oh i think she's talking about me <laughs> so uh i think it's you're all going to find that there's something of uh, real relevance on there for you but anyway this lady has been a bit of a globetrotter. She's been all over the place and she'll tell us a bit about that. And she's over here in the UK now running her own practice, which she's been doing for more than 20 years. And uh, I think it's important for me to just get on and introduce Deirdre Wallace. Hello there, Deirdre. Yes, thank you very much indeed for inviting me onto your podcast and giving me this valuable opportunity to share my knowledge. And you mentioned a bit of globetrotting. Yes, of course, I grew up in South Africa and then I studied fine arts in a BA of fine arts and and child psychology and I worked in a children's home. But I was too young those days to carry on with the child psychology and and so on and I also wanted to travel. So I I put that on the back burner. I went to Mm. travel and started traveling through Europe and America uh, South America, North America, wow. and then I went back to South Africa because I was young and of course I wanted to do, uh, develop my CV. Mm. And that's when I very quickly got offered various jobs. And those days I was teaching ceramics. Oh really? Um, wow. Yes. And that was also very informative in terms of the work that I would eventually be, get to do. Oh. 
And so when I got to, to, to London, I very quickly got work, but also then landed up doing the odd stint at Holloway Prison, Pentonville Prison for friends of mine who wow. were friend had gone to New Zealand. And then I did a stint at St. Mary's Hospital for day patients with mental health issues. So what I started gathering in being in South Africa through going through the apartheid uh, era, yeah. all the changes that occurred there, then working as a teacher, but also seeing what happens in prisons and St. Mm. Mary's Hospital, took me back to the, the moments that I had in the orphanage and, and uh, home that I worked in. And I began to realize that there were connections that I was seeing. Mm. And when I was then influenced to go and retrain as a, as a therapist, and a great friend of mine then said, well, if you'd retrain as a relationship therapist, I'll give you my Harley Street private practice. Oh, really? And when doors wow. open, you just take it. You don't ask, you just oh take them. Oh, my God. So that answers, because I was going to ask you, how come you ended up being a relationship therapist? Because that's already, I mean, you've, you've condensed what sounds like an immense journey into a couple of minutes there. <laughs> Quite extraordinary. That I mean, I'm glad to, to hear that you were not an inmate in Pentonville. Or, Thank or God whatever. for that, yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I know so, how to open doors. <laughs> I, I, absolutely, fantastic. But also, I mean, that's, that's really powerful stuff uh, you know when you're working alongside you know prisoners and that kind of stuff that, that must have been uh, you know uh, a really powerful experience Deirdre. Absolutely and the fact that so many of these these prisoners don't realize that a lot of why they're there actually mm. comes from childhood which I'm going to come back to. Yeah of course yeah we're going to talk um, about that. And you know all that I'm speaking about now having traveled through through the Middle East I spent a lot of time in Cairo I spent some time in LA, in, in Mexico, in Guatemala, in Peru, all these places I realized mm. that people are actually all the same. Yeah. They've all had similar experiences where, um, and, and in fact their goals are, are really just to have a good family mm. and, and feed their family and have a good job. So people are nice right across the board, but they mm. don't realize that actually a lot of the issues that we have come from childhood and then mm. by not understanding how relationships work, things can go horribly wrong. Yeah. So basically that kind of um, gives a bit of explanation about why relationships have become your passion, your career passion. You know, I mean, obviously being offered a, a Harley Street practice by <laughs> a friend is like, oh, OK, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll take the job. Right. But but it. it do you have you found then that it's the it's your work with relationships of what really have um given you f true satisfaction in your career then yes because when couples come to me what i have to look at is what they have brought to to their own relationships mm. and what the, the clues are that they will give me that will help me understand what goes on between the two people, which I'll come yeah. back to. Yeah. To I, I mean, let, let, let me kind of kick off then as we kind of get into the meat of this, because as I said, I, I've spent a long time reading your blog and taking copious notes um, because there was a lot in there that I found very powerful and, and resonated. And, and in fact, starting right at the beginning of the blog, uh, I think it's posts number one to four, if I remember correctly, sure. which are all about um, how what happens to us in our early childhood and our relationship with our 
parents and our families how deeply that affects us and obviously most of it goes into our unconscious mind you know we're, as adults we're, we're not necessarily sitting here thinking about oh yes I remember that time when mum wouldn't let me play with my rattle or whatever you know that it's not like that there's uh, uh, you know in the space of our formative years uh you know which for many of us are quite hard to recall I mean I, I certainly know I don't have many specific memories before the age of four or five something There's like the problem. that yeah. yeah but Obviously, stuff went deep um, further in. Uh, now, a lot of this has to do with how we uh, deal with or how we were affected by things like abandonment and rejection in our childhood. Um, I'm, there's a name that I've got to say which has popped straight into my head, a, a chap called John Bowlby, who yes. some years ago uh, started working on what we now know as attachment theory. That's right. And that's something that I've mentioned on this show before. I think it was episode two or three, something like that, because it's actually a fascinating way of understanding how we relate to other people. And obviously um, that... Uh, can lead to us becoming in as adults either you know if we're lucky we may be very secure people but many people in relationships can become what's known as either avoidant or anxious or ambivalent another way of expressing that isn't it but that obviously uh is uh the kind of stuff that is absolutely bread and butter to you because reading through your blog it's like wow yes i recognize this kind of stuff and how powerful it is and the kind of you know when i think back to certain instances in my childhood i mean i lost my father when i was only 10 years old so obviously that. i know that that's had an effect on me and i'm i'm actually only at age 60 starting to understand just quite how much of an effect that had in the subsequent mm. you know years at school and stuff but this is obviously absolutely your bread and butter and helps you to teach your clients how to understand their relationships so i think it's time to sort of hand over to you because you even take this further, don't you, Deirdre, where, you know, you even talk about not just people's relate interpersonal relationships with their partner, their husband, wife, whatever, but also even how it can affect their career and their job in later life, which I, wow, that's not, hadn't thought of that really great stuff. So I, I think that... Um, Talk a bit about that. The fact that actually, what you one of the things you say, one of your USPs, is that you say so you don't offer relationship advice, you offer relationship knowledge. Yeah, now, that's, that's right. obviously a fine distinction, but pretty crucial. So, do you want to start there and explain why you've made that kind of distinction and how, how important it is, and that that sort of ties in with your own you say you've got kind of a usp a unique selling point which you might want to tell the listeners all about deirdre that's right because relationship advice there's lots of self-help books out there it's if he doesn't do this in the morning or she doesn't do this what can you do about it if mm. he comes in the door and he does that or she does that or the cat pees on the carpet or the cat <laughs> <laughs> in your case spread some cat food everywhere what do you do about it mm. That's advice as to what you then can do. That comes later. 
I'm talking about actual knowledge which forces people or encourages people to go back to their childhood to understand what they are actually going to bring to their relationship, to their careers, and indeed from childhood, what are they bringing into adulthood that needs to, to, to create a, or that will create a foundation for, for their goals to be, to be achieved. And so really what happens is, we, which we know, we know that, mm. that there are layers we take from, child, uh, from childhood, uh, layers of learning that start from either trauma, where we've either been uh, abandoned, rejected, where there have been addiction issues, divorce issues, and so on, all those that trauma or not, or we take subtle messages that we've got from our teachers and our parents that have told us that we are either ugly, fat, lacking talent, incompetent, stupid, with the, all those words like can't, won't, don't, all that stuff that is so disempowering. But most importantly, we take from our childhoods what our parents did, their relationship. We learn about their relationships, what they feel about, about relationships and friendships and family, how they deal with conflict, their attitudes, their beliefs, their culture, their religion. We take all this into childhood, but something else happens while we're dealing with this, and that this is never really spoken about. When we are born, when we come out of the womb, we immediately realize for the next few years that actually we cannot go back into that womb. We are therefore not going to have mummy's attention 24-7 ever again. We are going to have to let go. And how our parents deal with this will inform us about our own abandonment issues. So, when you see a mother holding a baby, you normally see her gazing down at the child. So that starts something what I call the gaze. Mm -hmm. This is the connection. This is the attachment that Bowlby was talking about. This is where a child attaches. But it's in fact, the child has, a, has done that already in the womb. There is mm -hmm. like a psychic attachment connection that the child has with the mother via her heartbeat, via her, the vibrations of her voice. And so even when the child is in her arms, hearing the heart beat, beat at her breast, while it's feeding, there is that connection. Mm. So when the mother then picks the child up and puts the child down to sleep, there is this separation. Yeah. If she then goes just to brush her teeth or walks out of the room, there is even further separation. Mm. Now, if she f abandons us entirely and abandons that baby, that baby will start to cry, not just for a few minutes to, to attract mummy's attention to come back into the room and feed mm. them, but the baby will start to panic. It will cry, it will cry, and continue crying until it's actually blue in the face. Because in a way, the mother also represents its life force, the milk. Mm. So all this provides a foundation from which we are going to spring from. It informs us about abandonment and whether we've been entirely rejected or not. And mm. from there, that connection is what we need to have to deal with. That connection or disconnection, that separation that informs us 
in terms of what and how relationships are going to run from there onwards. Mm. So that becomes the seed. It's what we plant in, 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 our, in our deep psyches. Mm. And from there, the plant then grows. If that seed is faulty, then that plant might not grow into a healthy plant. And where that happens is if the child is abandoned in any form or feels like it's emotionally been abandoned, mm. it starts to question, what have I done? Is there something wrong with me? Why am I not lovable? Mm. And if there's something wrong with me, then I need to be punished. Yeah. This light, and you mentioned the prisons. There we go. That's yeah. why a lot of people end up in prison because they don't believe that actually they are worthy of anything other than than punishment. And people do it on, on subtle levels. They have they get into debt, destructive relationships. Yeah. They get to work on a, a late. All sorts of little things that people do on a daily basis where they don't actually realize that this goes way, way, way back into those early days when they may have stopped not only trusting mummy but themselves or they yeah. felt that they are not worthy of mummy's love yeah this is interesting because one of the things i know i've struggled with for a long time which led to my kind of bit of a meltdown i had at, at the beginning of this year was uh, to do with self-loathing and mm. trying to you know then doing the work to try and understand where's that self-loathing come from i called it the devil on my shoulder who told me i was crap at everything where's that come from you know in so many respects i'm a talented intelligent guy but there's still this voice mm. or there was this voice which is gone now thank goodness uh that was just telling me i was rubbish and it this is this is why this resonated so powerfully with me because mm -hmm. of course it you know now i've had the help and the conversations have done the work it's made me realize oh yeah my early life perhaps wasn't as straightforward as it might have been no so and I, you don't I, remember what before the age of four what you may have felt Absolutely. And this is what i saw in the children's homes yeah. this need the you know, people these poor little kids at two or three, clinging onto our, our legs and, and, and ankles, hoping that we'll take them home with them because they, they feel so left, so horribly abandoned. Now, just quickly, there's a, um, when we were, to, I was training, we saw something, a little video called the Little Johnny video. That, well, I called it that because at that point I didn't realize that was actually a, uh, a, a student of, um, I think it was Anna Freud, Right. And or to a couple of students, husband and wife team, and they were working in the in the hospitals, and they started realizing this as well that if you just suddenly abandon a child, mm -hmm. they are going to start fretting, they're going to start panicking, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, but very fortunate for all of us is that they then put a camera into a little creche and they followed this couple. So a mother who was got pregnant, she didn't have anyone to look after the child. So while she had the second child, so while she was in hospital giving birth to the second child, she handed her to little, little Johnny into the creche and daddy would come and visit little Johnny every at five o'clock every afternoon after work. Right, right. And they watched this child for 10 days and it was shocking. So unfortunately for Johnny, but fortunately for all of us to have seen this little, this, this uh, video, which showed how little Johnny would try and get the attention of the carers. Mm -hmm. Now the carers kept changing uh, their, 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 their 
their morning, afternoon, and, and, and evening uh, slots routines. and routines. So they had no clue, no idea what was happening. So little Johnny, who wasn't as feisty as all the others, tried to get mummy, i.e. the carer's attention. But slowly, one day, during day two, day three, he realized that that was not going to happen. He was unable mm -hmm. to do that. And you slowly seeing this little, little boy retreat into the corner. But wow. every day you see when Daddy comes home uh, to, to visit him, he runs to the corner where the, his little jacket is 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 uh, uh, placed mm -hmm. in a cupboard. He opens the door, he grabs his jacket, he comes running to Daddy, places the little jacket in Daddy's hands, and pleads for Daddy to take him home. Wow! Daddy doesn't really understand this. He leaves mm -hmm. little Johnny, mm -hmm. and this goes on for ten days until Johnny just. You see Johnny just give up. Wow. And when they, the, both the parents finally return, that look that Johnny gives his mother mm. is what we call the Johnny look. Right. The anger, the rage, yeah. and the total disconnection. And I do believe they followed this character all the way into adulthood and that he still doesn't he battles to have uh, uh, relationships because he wow. disconnected That's extraordinary absolutely and it's a big wake-up call for a lot of parents that you know yeah. children do remember yeah, yeah they are connected and in fact there's a a, a book called uh, the primal wound with a woman in in san francisco has also spoken about uh, uh, adoption where when children are adopted even as babies they mm. still remember the heartbeat and the wow. voice and the vibration of the mother and so they will grieve their mother for the rest of their lives and adoptive parents need to understand this yeah. that their children are grieving these adoptive parents are angry and rage but it's not because of them it's because they're still grieving the loss yeah. of that parent Absolutely. Uh, my best friend is actually a social worker who deals with adoption and stuff. Mm. And I'm sure that this would all sound very familiar to her. Of when course. She listens in. Um, yes. there's, there's something, as you said, that the Johnny, the Johnny thing there sounds like uh, a much more extreme version of, I think, wasn't it called the surprise situation experiment that Bowlby and his colleagues did yes. a long time ago, where there's a mother and baby and mum goes out the room. That's just right. for a few minutes and they observed how did the child react not just when she left the room but then also when she returned mm -hmm. r raging from oh mummy mummy i'm so glad you're back to almost kind of pretending that she hadn't even come back in the room kind of thing fascinating right. stuff before I you mean, abandon me i'll abandon you so there's yeah, yeah. the turn away of the eyes yeah yeah which i know you, you kind of write about on your blog i mean we haven't got time to go into all this stuff but this is bringing to the surface an awful lot of fascinating stuff that i've been kind of reading about in recent months that's right so what we do is we take all of this mm into adulthood yeah and now we're going to try and have relationships so i mentioned the games yeah. and that's very important i use this with my clients i know very quickly if i just get up from my chair and i walk towards them what levels of intimacy they can endure Oh. If they allow me to go up really close, I know that they could be, perhaps be needy. They're the ones that are more abandoned. Mm -hmm. If they like most of us go, whoa, you're coming in too close. That's the natural thing. They've learned, right, mummy cannot be there for us 24-7. But mm -hmm. I've managed to deal with it 
in a good enough scenario. Mm. On the other hand, if somebody pushes you away or actually looks away, then that means they, they cannot deal with intimacy at all. Not just with relationships, but also with maybe projects or their career and so on. Mm. And that level of intimacy is what relationships also have to deal with. Because sometimes if people find intimacy too scary, they're going to find ways yeah. of managing that. They will introduce golf. Guy, The husband has to go and play golf. <laughs> or they're going to introduce, she has to fly away on business regularly. Yeah. Or they'll have kids that will take their attention away. Yeah. And yes, they may even have affairs. An affair may actually be required for the couple to maintain their intimacy. But that's wow, a whole man. other thing. Exactly. I was going to say that's Whoa. an interesting statement. Absolutely. So we create scenarios. And the easiest one is, of course, we argue. So the minute a couple feel very safe, they argue just so that they can be reminded that, of course, actually, this is mummy's mummy's not going to be there. You cannot mm. be there for me 24 7. Mm. Mm. So, right, we take all this into our relationships. And this is what I, I explain also with how we, we choose people. Mm. Now, we've just mentioned that the Johnny issue, the abandonment, we can also have overprotective parents, whatever type of messages you got from your parents, their relationships is what you take with you. So it's very important that individuals actually look back at their parents relationships. And that's important when it comes to choosing people as well. And how do we do this? So when I started training, and in fact, this is uh, mentioned in John Cleese's book, uh, families and how to survive them. Right. When we started training, we got up and we did this exercise where without speaking, we walked around the room, looking into people's eyes, we would either shake our head and say, no, 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 I'm not choosing you, or, or no, 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 not you, or no, not you, yes, you. And so we would sit down and each of us were given five minutes to tell the other person a little bit about our background. Mm. And that's when we, all of us nearly fell off the chair. How come did we all, without speaking, and we didn't really know one another well, because this exercise happened at the beginning of all of us, you know, in at the beginning of our training. How come did we choose people that also shared similar backgrounds? Wow. You know, so we had a conversation, you have this in, 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 in everyday conversation as well, which is, oh, I didn't realize your father was an alcoholic. Yeah, mine was too. No wonder we get on <laughs> so well. Or, oh, yes, of course. I'm also from a single parent background or oh, my mother also did this or my father also did this or we moved around a lot or I was also chosen last as we did in this exercise. Yeah. All these little things, these layer upon layer upon layer that we find with other people and most of it's even unconscious because as I've just said, it's unconscious. Wow. So birds of a feather flock together. together. And when somebody says to you, oh, she's not my type, it's nothing to do with whether they've got a sexy body, blue eyes, black hair, whatever. It's that they are your type because they share issues that are similar to you. And that's why you feel comfortable with them. Mm. But unfortunately, if you haven't dealt with some of those issues from your past and you then enter a relationship with the person, you are going to bring all these different aspects of yourself even if you're comfortable with the person, 
both of you are going to bring this into the relationship. Yeah. So you're bringing what you have internalized, so that's the internal parent, from your parents, whether they married, whether they are divorced, whether something went wrong, whatever, mm. you're going to bring that into the relationship because that's what you share. Right. If you don't share it, you may have an issue. That's when there might be friction because mm. if you don't know how to deal with somebody from a broken home, you may find it difficult because the way they deal with conflict might be different to the way you have been brought up to deal with conflict. Yeah. And that's when friction begins to occur because it's you think it's similar, but it actually isn't because deep down in the unconscious, as you get to know this person, as you get older, you will realize that actually, oops, there are issues that you need to deal with, even though, and this is what's a little bit, even though you thought you shared things, as you go deeper, you actually may not share things. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of a split there. Uh, I was just going to say, one of the other things that you talk about on your blog is that how uh, individuals can bring things into relationship, stuff that they've not dealt with, stuff that they've not addressed, and actually end up projecting that onto their partner. Can you say a little bit about that, Deirdre? That's right. So when from the marital fit, you then have something called the unconscious contract. So when these two people haven't dealt with their past, they will have an unconscious hope that the other person or the relationship will heal what mummy way back then or daddy way back then didn't give them. So when they start projecting all this hope or stuff they haven't dealt with into their relationship, all these expectations that they are wanting the other person to do, mm. in comes a few problems. Because when yeah. you put somebody on a pedestal and you hope that you are going, they're going to come and heal stuff, we know that people on pedestals fall off. Mm. They may not want to be on that pedestal and in comes friction. Mm. Yeah. And that's when the projection and all the stuff that is plonked into the relationship bucket starts to go awry, as it were. Things start yeah. not working out. You, you did a lovely little diagram on your blog. Very simple. Two circles. One's a big circle and one's a little tiny circle. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. could, you, could you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Because I'm sure they're thinking, this, this is bonkers. What's that all about? But it's all about the, the, the roles that we play, isn't it? The, the effect of putting someone on a pedestal, basically. So, yes, that's to do with relationships of uh, equals power, control and sex mm -hmm. and money. So the control and the power that we gain by putting somebody on a pedestal means you, you're giving them more power and you mm -hmm. will then feel powerless. Mm -hmm. So the, the up and the down, if you think of somebody stepping up a few steps and stepping down, that aspect of giving somebody more power or taking power away or borrowing money and lending money you are mm. actually stepping up a pedestal saying i've got more money as the the the, the lender will will perhaps feel more powerful and then they of course start asking you well where's my money so it's yeah. it's that power shifting that starts happening rather than two people understanding their issues coming into the relationship and and not expecting too much from the other person giving away their power, taking power, being too much, too powerful, because people like to be on an even keel with other people. Yeah. 
And that's so, so important that we land up uh, being one another's equal. Because if it's not that, if it's not like that, then relationships start landing up in, 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 as being therapy. Yeah. You know, and relationships are not therapy. Your partner is not <laughs> going to give you what mummy uh, yeah. didn't give you. And that's what I always say in therapy is that life, therapy is not about change. Yeah. I can't reinstall someone. Your childhood is your childhood. It mm -hmm. is what it is. And the most important thing is to go back, to look at what happened, mm -hmm. gain some kind of understanding, mm -hmm. and then accept Accept what happened. Accept yeah. that this is how far this relationship is going to, to go. This is the aha moment where you yeah. go, ah, oh, that's yeah. who I am. That's how this has all worked out. Mm -hmm. But you can't change that because I can't mm -hmm. reinstall you. You're not a computer. Yes, absolutely. But you can start accepting so that you can begin to work with what you've got. And if you enter a relationship before you've done that, before you've yeah. accepted it, you're going to come into your relationship with all this disparate stuff, hoping this person's going to help you solve all this, and it's going to turn into a mess. Yeah. Yeah, th uh, this is something you mentioned. I mean, there's a couple of things that are in my head at the moment. The first thing is that moment, the, the knight in shining armor thing, where you kind of fall head over heels for someone, <laughs> and, oh, yes, this is the person of my dreams. And then they pick their nose. And then they pick their nose or, or whatever, you know. Leave their dirty underpants lying around. That's right. Et cetera, you know. And 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 very quickly they can you start realizing, oh, they're not the person of my dreams. And of course then, you know, you've set yourself up for the fall there, haven't you? Mm. Which, you know, can lead to disappointment, bitterness, anger, all those bad things. And the lesson there, the lesson there is you become the person you want to be with. You yeah. don't wait, look for somebody that you are not because people yeah. mirror our stuff. Yeah. And that's the thing from that exercise where we walked around choosing people, you'll start realizing that birds of a feather flock together. So who on yeah. earth are you flocking with? Yeah. They only mirror your stuff. So if you haven't dealt with stuff, you're going to be attracting people that are emotional uh, disasters. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? I'm exaggerating yeah. now. But it's, it's going to turn into a mess. And then what happens with the children? The children are the ones that suffer if you don't know quite what's going on. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I, I wanted to... Uh, there's this thing about where uh, in, in relationships people can kind of accept roles. Uh, this is where the, the words transactional analysis are popping into my head because mm. there's people can take on the roles of victim or bully or aggressor or rescuer, all these things. That's a whole that's a whole other podcast in itself, folks, which we'll do at some point. But uh, it kind of made me realize that your your work covers a lot of ground. There's an awful lot of different kind of uh, factors and influences that are coming into dealing with the complexity of relationships because something like that absolutely you get some relationships where uh if if a couple realize oh hang on a minute i'm i'm being put in this role and i don't like this role well the whole thing can start to fall apart there are other relationships which i've seen where people seem to just accept their role and they bimble along quite happily for decades <laughs> even though people on the outside might be thinking 
how does that work right so this this is one of those fascinating things isn't it it's so down to individual choices about how we respond to or react to these kind of situations Deirdre well first of all if it works why change it Mm. So if two people are happy to bumble along and they are happy, mm. leave it. Yeah. If they find uh, that a bullying type relationship somehow works for them, leave it. But mm. if it doesn't, then yes, there are problems. But yeah, we very easily get influenced by the people that we are with. That's what they say. Birds of a feather flock together and you become the people that you associate yourself with. So if you suddenly be, are associated with a, a bully or you attract a bully, be careful because bullies also very quickly become victim. I mean, you could become a victim to that bully. Yeah. And that's the Cartman triangle, which we all fall under, the drama triangle, where yeah. if you've got, and we do this all the time, where you've got the rescuer and the victim. But if you try to, if you're the victim and you get rescued or the rescuer keeps having to rescue the victim, mm. at some point there's going to be the, the punisher or somebody's going to start getting resentful and there's going mm. to be anger or unhappiness will start seeping into that kind of relationship. Mm. So that's why, again, it's about an equal kill of an, uh, two people coming together who are more equally suited on mm. a that have done some kind of developmental work because mm. otherwise you're going to get that mismatch. I think what you mentioned uh, uh, in passing there was this kind of aha moment, you know, where uh, perhaps doing therapy or not necessarily where two people just accept each other for what they actually are, right? They, they that's, that's a moment where uh, you can either decide, well, actually that gives me contentment, you know, that acceptance. Or, of course, you can decide, oh, well, in which case I'm in the wrong relationship then because that's who they are and they're not going to change. I am who I am. I'm not going to change, you know, hopefully that's right. part amicably. But that is definitely a crucial moment, crucial isn't it? Crucial moment when suddenly a couple realise that's it. It's not going to change from here onwards. Mm. Sometimes couples come to see me and they... and Either one just suddenly says, we've been here long enough. This is not going to change. I'm not mm. coming back. Mm. It's that moment where they realize that this is how it's, it's, it's not going to get any better. And then it's up to them whether they're going to move on mm. or perhaps, and in many circumstances, they can't. They get stuck because there are children involved. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really sad. So I've got an article out called The Nine Questions People Should Ask before they fall in love. <laughs> well, that's the hope, because you can control some of this. The nine questions are about asking your partner these questions before you, you get married, about their, their background, about their, their parents, about how they grew up, what their beliefs are about religion, sex, mm marriage and so on and money is a big one too mm. so when you ask those questions instead of falling in love and then finding you pregnant or whatever um it's asking those questions so that you can create a, a good environment so you can mm. achieve the goals that you're wanting to gain mm. and this is why a lot of my role is to to you know i realize that relationships are risky 
and my role is to help people reduce that risk. Yeah. You know, to to enter relationships with eyes wide open rather than shut and to yeah. start thinking long term, not short term, yeah. because this is a big issue. So I'm not sure if you read one of my blogs about single parent homes, the statistics in that blog is really shocking. So I, yeah. I, I link where I got that from, which yeah. explains that so many people in prisons, etc, etc, come from single parent homes, mm -hmm. where they do not have mentors. Yeah. So I'm talking about single parent homes where there is no father figure at all. There's no uncle, there isn't a grandfather, there is nobody. Yeah. And so they lean towards gangs in order mm. to get the mentorship there. And of course, we know that that's not always very healthy. Yeah. And if it's not gangs, it's drugs. As a man who comes from a single parent family, uh, let me of course say that that doesn't necessarily apply to everyone. Of course not. <laughs> Thank God but. for that. <laughs> but it's looking at on but, a scale yeah. of one to ten. And we're all on a scale of one to ten. We've all been abandoned on yeah, a scale yeah. of one to ten. We've all yeah. addicted to some level. We're all everything on some level. But it's looking at on that scale of one to ten, where do we fit? And yeah. so when we then attract a partner, please don't attract the park bench alcoholic. Let's yeah. go for somebody who just needs a drink once a week and so yeah. on. So that you, in other words, when you go to therapy, and I'm not advocating therapy entirely, it's just that when you've done some self-development work mm. and you've been in therapy, and you've you've looked back in the past, you've understood, you've accepted. Now you can say, right, this is what I want. These, this is what I want to achieve. How am I going to get it? And that's when you can sit back in your armchair and decide who it is that you're wanting to perhaps be with. You're not just grabbing and accepting. And this is where a lot of women more than men go wrong. They think, oh, he's in love with me, he's in love with me, and therefore, and, and, and they have sex, and then children happen, and, and it just happens so fast. Yeah. And there is no stop moment where they say, hang on a minute, let me check and see yeah. if this person is really right for me. Yeah. Let me find out, let me ask more questions. And that is so important. And it's important because children are the ones that suffer if, kids, if, yeah. if the adults don't ask those questions. Yeah, yeah, and because the danger can be that the cycle gets repeated. Absolutely. Yeah. And from those children, they learn from you. And then the next generation and the next generation just carries on the repeat. Yeah. But now, one of the things that we then do from all of this mm. is we forget we can't take aspects of ourselves and put them in a suitcase and leave for the office. Mm. Actually, we take all of this in our body language, our belief system, everything goes with us when we enter the office. Yeah. And what you bring is going to inform people around you, either consciously or unconsciously, about who you really are. Mm. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> and that's so important because if you're wanting to get a promotion but your body language is saying something else no wonder somebody else always gets the promotion and you get overlooked yeah, yeah, yeah. you know or if you're wanting to to, to achieve a, a business and, and open your own business you're going to have to have leadership skills yeah. but if you don't have those leadership skills or you don't know how to to lead a, a company because you've got all this baggage from behind, from you know, yeah. hovering in your, in your psyche, it may not happen. Yeah. So there are a lot of issues that we take with us to the work every day that we don't realize. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we spend more time at work than we do even in our relationships. Absolutely. This is something I found fascinating in your blog, this, this transition from interpersonal relationships to how it can affect your career. And there was something I, I can't find my, I've got 22 pages of notes here, I can't find the specific note, but there was something even about, you were talking about, yes, the type of background you had in your family. You know, did you come from a big family? Were you the leader in the family? Were you the senior person in the family? What roles were you expected to play in the family? And interestingly, single parent families, the number of us who end up self-employed. Yes, right? or only, ch um, uh, only children. Yes, self-employed. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and and that's like hello, that's me, <laughs> and because and 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 I think this is the other important thing is feeling comfortable being self-employed, not needing to have a team around. I've, I have run a business where I've had a team of people around me and stuff, and that was fine because I now realise I've got some leadership qualities. But I'm also perfectly happy being a writer, podcaster, and all that kind of stuff. You know, doing my own stuff, getting on with my own stuff, because that's what I did as a little boy mm. you know mum had to go out to work and all the rest of it I was left on my own pottering about around with my hobbies and arts and crafts and all that kind of stuff and the interesting thing is that's now what I'm essentially I'm doing in later life Absolutely. and that was that was really startling reading I think this is the thing isn't it dear dearie that we often have these kind of eureka moments these cathartic moments when we actually see something written in black and white and go oh my god that's me right it's an extraordinary moment when that happens. So I was really fascinated by this. So tell us more about, you know, the the, the effect it can have on your career and your, of course, your self-belief about money and wealth and all these things that you don't realise you're being held back by your past. That's right, because what your parents may have felt about money is, are the messages that you will have, have gleaned. And often it's not even conscious, it's unconscious. Where you lived in life, you know, what, what suburb you lived in, what, what city you lived in, or what rural area you lived in, all those things, whether your parents had money, whether they, you, you got pocket money, did they save, did they have investments, did you own your house, did you rent, did you have a council flat, all those things become part of your informative money scenario yeah. then you also listen often the kids listen to what their parents tell their, their one another when they come back from work what are the stories kids are like little sponges they absorb all of this you know how did you manage conflict at work how do you deal with a boss or a staff member what did you feel what was daddy's role was he the worker was he a boss all those things get filtered down to the children if there are investments, how do you invest? What do you invest? What can go wrong? What are the risks? Was there a, a, a depression? Did you lose it all? Mm. Um, you know, how does the family manage their money? Is there a budget? Mm. Or do they just spend and spend and hope for the best? Mm. And and then, of course, we've got credit cards these days, which is a yeah. very new new angle to a lot of the you know, this new generation mm. where you can just pay and pay today, uh, uh, buy today and pay tomorrow. And that's another problem where people don't have to think about or they don't think that they have to think about these things. Mm. Yeah, because uh, certainly um, uh, living in debt can be crushing. I mean, it's a source of so much of, you know, really bad depression and even, you know, sad to say people who take their own lives because they can't 
cope with living in debt with debt and the shame and guilt that that can bring on because i think we're all conscious that yeah the credit cards exist but you're kind of handing your future to a corporation who suddenly decide yeah we've decided to put up our interest rate from five percent to ten percent or whatever you know you have no control over these kind of things so uh, uh, what's interesting to me is how the role models of our parents and our family uh, influence so much of our later lives without us actually necessarily realizing that Deirdre yes and it's only when you get older that you start thinking about your parents and it's when you realize oh dear I'm becoming I'm becoming just like my mother <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing a video of myself and I thought oh my gosh that's just exactly how my mother speaks. Oh my word! <laughs> yeah. And you realize, you know, but you don't realize this when you are twenty years old. You think, oh, I can, I'm never going to be like my parents. I have changed, but you haven't because it's your internal parents are there, whether you like it or not. It's twenty yeah. years of ingrained knowledge into that little dry sponge that you were, where it's yeah. all gone in, whether you like it or not, and you yeah. will react from that sponge as it were whether it's a good or a bad sponge yeah i mean one of the things that's interesting is that you know i, I it would be wrong to necessarily give the impression that you are doomed <laughs> you're doomed <laughs> you're doomed whatever your parents were that's what you're going to be because obviously some people and i think of myself uh kind of rebelled against my parents model you know my, my mother's model my my mother wanted me to get a nice safe job you know and and you know all all that kind of stuff that would make her proud of me and i don't know, be a doctor or whatever and i decided hell no that's not what i want so what is it uh deirdre that makes some people kind of rebel and some people conform well first of all when we go back to as i said therapy is not about change you understand you accept you work with what you've got that at that point you can say look i don't want to be like my mother so i'm going to work really really hard not to be like that and that's when you work you, you watch yourself like a hawk where you can work on really really being careful that you don't land up being an alcoholic a parch bench alcoholic or a drug drug addict and so on so you and even if it's little things you can work on that, but it's understanding and knowing that it even exists. Most people don't even know it exists. Mm. And that bit, that's that moment where you think, I don't really want to be like that. I want to be like this. Mm. That's the moment when, which we can actually call ambition. So when you mm. say, I want to do something different. I don't mm. want to be a banker like my father. I want to be an artist. Mm. That can create a lot of anguish within the family but at the same time you start standing up for what you re who you really are and what you're wanting mm. to be and that's a very important thing so no nobody's ever doomed you mm. just need to start making choices but the choices that suit you better yeah absolutely I, I, and you do uh particularly in the the later blog posts you keep coming back that phrase watch yourself like a hawk mm. uh, and you quote for some you know, some well-known names in personal development and and success and so on and so forth about how in fact it's the personal development the desire to be open to change rather than remaining hidebound and fixed in your way that is 
of crucial importance why is that you know what is why is that so much the key for you Deirdre I speak about watching ourselves ourselves like a hawk because Mm. when you're trying to break some habits because this is the other thing if you don't want to be like your father you don't want to be like this that the other Mm. or you recognize that there is a habit that is so ingrained something you learned from your teachers that you were stupid or that mm. you've been labeled with something that actually doesn't exist. It, you do not need to, to head into the, down that route because it's negative mm. and it's not helping you. If you then try and break that habit, it's very hard mm. and you need to keep working on yourself. And that's why you need to watch yourself like a hawk. And the worst thing about all of that is that just when you think you've broken the habit, it comes and bites you on the bottom just to <laughs> kind of remind you that you've still got work to do. Yeah. No, 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 no. Come back here. Come back here. You've still got yeah, work yeah. to do. And that's really the problem is that people give up too quickly. They've got to keep persisting yeah. and persisting and breaking th- through those barriers until eventually the habit is gone. Mm. You know, these layers of the onion, as it were, those la- layers are very, very, very thick. Or they're very they're not very uh, pliable you know it they can be also difficult to to let go and release and Mm. it can also be very painful sometimes Mm. but they need to be let go if you're going to be if you decide to be something else and need to go down a different directional route then sometimes you have to persist in letting those things go and that can take time and not everybody realizes how time how much time it might take yeah but if you want it hard enough Keep, keep, keep going. In fact, uh, um, Anthony Hopkins has got something on on uh, uh, Instagram right now where he says, keep, you know, he's got his fist in the air and he says, keep, keep, keep at it. Keep at it. Keep at it. And believe, believe, believe. That's the whole thing. You just need to do that. And find whatever avenue you can that will help you go that next mile, that next... Absolutely. It, it's the persistence. I mean, because mm. this is the, the experience I've had in the last year, having, you know, had my little moment earlier in the year, where, I mean, first of all, I'm the kind of person who's like a sponge, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person... Who, wh- interestingly this thing about you know being a man in therapy i i kind of enjoy and want to do the work you know maybe i just keep wanting to impress teacher i'm not sure you know but (laughs) but it's um if there is stuff out there there's information out there there are so many different avenues and ways of finding help so many different types of therapy you you know people listening if you need therapy trust me it's a really long list of different therapies available and you can find something that's that's the 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 route that's the most suitable for you but there's also other things that i found helpful like meditation and mindfulness and this kind Mm. of thing uh regular exercise in my case has made a huge difference yep because uh, I realised it was something I was badly missing. Because as a, as a youth, as a young man, I was extremely active, and then, like a lot of us, you know, I had a sedentary life for decades, and now going back to being active again. Wow, that really can help. But it's it's sticking at it, you know. It's it's not giving up. It is under it's self compassion as well. Being kind to yourself, realizing that 
yeah, you're going to have pig days, right? There's going to be days when you feel, yeah, I think I've sussed this. And then, you, as you say, you'll be flat on your face the next day thinking, oh, God, I misunderstood it all. I need to go back to the beginning. <laughs> but actually, you learn from that as well. Uh, I think one of the other things that's interesting, you have a very strong social media presence, Deirdre. I think, you know, that needs to be mentioned as well. You've got 40 odd thousand followers on Twitter, for goodness sake, and you're very active. I'm hugely impressed, actually. Um, I hope that you've got some way of automating some of the stuff you do or you are spending way too much time on Twitter. <laughs> right. Yes, I never sleep, do I? <laughs> 24-7, you'll find Deirdre on Twitter. She never sleeps. <laughs> yes, it's automated. I don't <laughs> But it's quite interesting because um, I, I mean, you know, uh, on social media, there's, particularly when you start, you know, delving into self-help, mindfulness, um, uh, 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 and mental health, all that kind of stuff, there's an awful lot of kind of, Factuous nonsense, frankly, that's out there. Lawful Brilliant lawful. question. Brilliant that you brought this up. That's good. First of all, we always will find what we are ready to work on, and mm. we will find the right people that will help us get you to the next stage. And I always mm. say, you just have to ask. I need a therapist. I need whatever. There is something I need to to work on, and you will get a myriad of of people telling you where to go. So it's, you do not have to go to a therapist. And yeah, I'm a therapist telling you this. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what I have found very useful is family constellations, um, also working on early stuff, which is rebirthing sometimes. That could also help self uh, uh, past life regression that sometimes can help if you if you believe in any of that but that can be very useful on some on some levels um also acupuncture because that gets your 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 your, your body and your mind uh, reconnected yoga i do ashtanga yoga which is very important because that connects the mind and the body as you said, exercise is incredibly important, but there also are, as you've just mentioned, massive amount of therapies out there. And the right person will come your way. You'll Google something, somebody will say something, and you'll, and you'll know that that's maybe the route that you're wanting to take. You do not have to do the traditional therapist, uh, although relationship therapy will do you no harm. It's an excellent form of getting to grips with your relationships and that's so important because we all have relationships and we all need to work with them tell us something about because you're you're working on some interesting projects of your own now deirdre aren't you which includes actors and things i understand so do you want to tell us a little bit about you know what you've got in the pipeline what you're planning so i have first of all got 138 blogs on my blog website at relationshipknowledge.com yeah. There are 138 blogs that are a synthesis of 20 years of my work, which yeah. is because I also trained as an adult educational teacher. So I know how adults learn. So I've synthesized it. It's all there. Although it's a lot to read, I am also going to vlog it, meaning I will create a, a, a podcast, which I'm yeah. going to to. To comment on and I will comment on every blog 
and I'll create that, pod plus, uh, that podcast. Once I start to work with, with video, then I'm also going to introduce actors. Because we have rehearsed various dramas that, again, are the synthesis of various issues. Addiction, the affair, smothering, abandonment, and so on. So those dramas are going to be very important for people to understand how things work. Why do couples stay together? Why don't they yeah. don't they stay and so on and that will give people a better way of of understanding things because this is what the greeks understood show 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 through yeah. drama well that sounds absolutely amazing i mean because this is this is really kind of setting you apart from the standard therapist that's, therapy, that's right. for sure <laughs> I mean, uh, so beyond that, I mean, are you just going? Uh, is your plan? You just want to continue your private practice? Are you going to be writing books about this? I think I mentioned before the show. I, you're, trust me, I could help you turn your blogs into a book already. There's That's so good. much there, <laughs> absolutely masses and masses of. Stuff. I'm sure it would help because not everybody wants to sit and read blogs. I don't really read blogs. I think a book will, of course. It's, it's there, you know, and, and it'll help a lot of people because they could refer to things quicker and they can make notes and write things on there because I do that too. Yeah. I use use books when they are working books too to make notes yeah. on and so on. So, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, what I've, I can also say is I don't run after things. Things come to me. Yeah. And I am very aware of building a foundation. Mm. All my... My, well, my whole career has been about this understanding. And where that comes from is I was about five years old when I watched a building across the road being built. Mm. And first of all, room was made for the foundations. And then I saw those little bits of string being planned out. Yeah. And then I watched the diggers begin to dig the foundations. Yeah. And then at some point, the wall started going up. And you never, ever see the foundations again. You see the walls, you see the windows, you see the doors, you see everything else, but you never see the foundations. Yeah. And we know here in Britain that if you don't have your foundation sorted out, that could cost a lot of money when you have to underpin. And when oh, your walls yeah. start cracking and so on, it can cost you. So that's yeah. why I suggest people get your foundations sorted so that you do not have to go back and, and re install re everything re 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 because that can cost a lot of time it can also cost a lot of money yeah but absolutely. it's that seed that those foundations that we that if we put them in place the rest can follow and that goes really yeah. quickly so the way i work is that i've it has taken me a long time to develop some kind of social media because no i don't have millions yet a, a social media where i've been able to get feedback. I have a, a Facebook group as well, which has been a great right. uh, forum for me to put things out and see whether people like things and, and so on. But yes, yeah. I have, I write articles for The Independent, Thrive Global, Medium, LinkedIn, and so on. And so what's next? Who knows? I'll see what comes my way. Fantastic. So Fantastic. thank you so, so much. Oh, you're welcome. But so to sum up, I mean, people, you can, uh, Deirdre's got this amazing blog thoroughly recommended which i'm going to put the link to under the show thank you got facebook group you're on twitter i think you're on instagram linkedin as well, instagram medium right bb wow. at some point <laughs> yes enough Goodness enough <laughs> enough enough i think a tiktok would be a step too far <laughs> i think so <laughs> 
Yes. Deirdre, thank you yes, so yes. much for coming on the show. It's been absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I could definitely, you know, talk for another hour just exploring this stuff with but you. But thank you to you too, because it, actually it's wonderful over the last 20, 30 years to see men change and open up to this kind of work has been fantastic. You know, it, it, it really is amazing. And to see how much you were prepared to actually do, because as I said earlier, men do fantastic work. And it is so important because you have a role to play. And society, unfortunately, sometimes forgets that in terms yeah. of your the, the father figure issues, the, you know, the mentoring that you, that you, that you do come to and, and that you, you, are, you, you, um, you know, you're there to, to offer so much. And thank you so much for the journey that you've been on too because that's, that's great for me to hear. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much indeed um deirdre i'm gonna bump into you again on twitter yes you are <laughs> that's for sure because you're there 24 7 i, I am indeed <laughs> it's e it, i would say at the moment it's easier to find deirdre than it is to find petrol at the moment yes. you can. <laughs> thanks so much deirdre all right thank you too don't forget to stay tuned for relaxation on the beach with henry Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. Relaxation on the Beach, Episode 7. And I thought today we'd focus on some good feelings. Feelings of gratitude to help offset any negative thoughts or feelings you might have about life in general or your own life specifically. Because all of us are going through tough times, I think. So first of all, let's begin as we usually do. Sit or lie down or stand in the place that you prefer. With your eyes closed or half open. Not focusing on anything in particular. Let's start by allowing ourselves to just kind of relax. Let your body kind of sag a bit. Feel the weight in your feet if you're standing up or on the surface of your chair or your bed. And as usual, just start with some nice gentle breaths. Ready? Okay. And 
In two, three, four, and hold. Two, three, four, and out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There. Two, three, four, and hold. Two, three, four, and out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So allow your breathing to be soft and gentle and deep, completely relaxed. So what have we got to be grateful for? I'm going to give you one of my examples. My life's been a bit stressful lately. Lots going on. Lots of work. Lots of crazy deadlines. <laughs> Sleep hasn't been great. I suffer from a digestive disorder that... Oh, that could trip me up from time to time. But, most mornings, I get a visit on my balcony from a local cat. The cat's name is Stanley. He's a very handsome boy. Quite stout. I think he gets well fed, not just by me, but by all the neighbours, as well as his owners. But he's got this really lovely face, really affectionate face, really quiet purr. And what he loves, as much as the biscuits that I give him, he likes the boops, the head boops. Male cats often do. It's one of those things. So I, when I see him, I get the biscuits ready and I go out onto the balcony. I get down on all fours to have a chat with him. And it's lovely. He strokes himself up against me and he bashes his head against mine. Gives me a good old rub with his scent glands. As if to say, ha, this is my favourite neighbour. Well, at least I am for the time being because I'm about to give him his biscuits. It's hard to express just how much... It's only a couple of minutes that I spend with him. But just how much that lifts my spirits. Now maybe you've got something similar in your life to be grateful for. Maybe you're a cat lover like me. Or maybe you prefer dogs. Maybe... You've got a little local park or green space where you just love to go for a walk and sit in the sunshine, feel the breeze on your face, listen to the babble of people around you, children playing. Maybe that's what you like. And if you're able to do that, let that really sink in. Feel grateful for those moments. 
really have those experiences, enhance those experiences, absorb those experiences, because then later on when times are tough, you can bring them to mind. So if you've got anything good like that in your life, be grateful for. Bring that to mind. And just sit with it for a minute. course, there might be all kinds of other things you feel grateful for. Maybe you even keep a gratitude journal. I know that many therapists recommend a gratitude journal. Think about your typical day. What can you be grateful for? Well, you could probably start with the fact that you've woken up. That's not a bad start. You've got a roof over your head. Put that on the list. You're in a warm house. Put that on the list. You're in a warm bed. That's definitely something to put on the list. You've got some really nice coffee or tea in the kitchen. Up in the morning. That's something. Have you got something in the fridge that you enjoy eating for breakfast? That too. Have you got a nice bath or shower to get you clean in the mornings? Hot water? That's definitely something to be grateful for. Comfortable clothes to wear. Be grateful for that too. What are you using to listen to this podcast? A laptop computer, a desktop computer, a handheld device, an iPhone, or an iPad, or something like that? Well, that's a miracle of science. So be grateful for that. Have you got a job to go to? Whatever it is, be grateful for that. Have you got loved ones? Whether family, friends? Be grateful for them, that's for sure. Have you got 
work colleagues who you get on with. Be grateful for them. Perhaps you run your own business. Be grateful that you have the skills, the talent, the grit, drive and determination to do that. Not everyone does. Are you perhaps retired? So you have time to pursue your dreams later in life. You're able to have the time to read, spend time with friends, perhaps to travel. Be grateful for that. Have you got your health? Even if you've got some aspects of poor health or ill health, like, you know, my health isn't perfect. So, let's say I've got 5% on the downside, but that means I've got 95% on the upside. Be grateful for that. Just add to your own list, in your mind, as I leave you for a minute, just all those things that you think, actually, I am really grateful for that thing, that person, that place, that vision. Go ahead and have a think. Carry on adding to the list whenever you like. Let's end our session with a couple more big, deep breath. You ready? So, in, two, three, hold, two, three. Fingers and toes, have a bit of a stretch. And slowly open your eyes and get ready to go back to your day.
Thanks for spending this bit of time with me. And until next time, be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player such as Apple, Google, Spotify or Amazon. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head all one word that's coffee.com slash inside your head where you can make donations in multiples of just three pounds the equivalent of a cup of coffee all donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show thank you